17. And I just want to look that, you know, the, the service has been built around two texts, one primary text, one secondary text, and the sermon likewise. This primary text is John 13. Secondarily, we'll be looking at Philippians 2. And uh, I think you'll see the deep connections there. On this week, uh, unlike Christmas, I was telling my uh, family, uh, Amy, earlier uh, this week, we had some time together, and I was saying, you know, I think the reason I love the week of the Passion so much is because we're, we're almost certain that Christmas is not the right time. Like, Jesus wasn't born in December. He was born more like this time of the year, most likely, uh, although we're uncertain about that. But this week, this week, we are definite about. We have no doubt that tonight, about 2,000 years ago, about this time of the day, the Lord would have celebrated the Passover meal with His disciples. I mean, think about that. Connect with that spiritually. We, we're as evangelical Protestants are a little scary about connecting um, visually and sensory worship. The Jews were not afraid of that. God was not afraid of that, okay? Um, he put festivals together that His people would always connect all of the senses to his redemption and to his act. And so we're doing the same thing. Um, we're not being Catholic. We're not trying to, to carry on a Catholic tradition. Dave and I were talking about that earlier. No disrespect to others who have a different feeling about this, but this is not about Catholicism. This is about helping our people, helping each other remember what our Lord was doing that purchased our redemption, that took us from being slaves and made us friends. What a profound statement. When you stop and think about it. So what everything tonight has been designed to point you to the command to love as he has loved us and to serve as he has served us. The simplicity of the act that we're going to look at tonight can be easily missed and overlooked the importance of it can in its simplicity. Because it's so basic, we just, in our world, I'm afraid, just kind of throw off the significance, in other words. We don't really catch what was going on. We might pause at the beginning of John 13 and think, well, that's kind of odd. Jesus took a bowl out was washing people's feet. That's, that's uh, nice of him. And then we just kind of move on. That was just kind of rather odd, you know. We're so out of touch, I'm afraid, with the full import of what he was doing. We're out of touch with what he was doing, though the people in the room were not. As Ryan alluded to earlier, Jews did not allow Jewish slaves to wash feet. Jewish people did not wash another person's foot. If a person was wealthy enough to have a Gentile in his house of low standing, the very lowliest of the low, probably a young boy or a young girl in the home, they would have positioned them at the door to wash feet. If there was no such servant, as Ryan said earlier, there was no such servant, obviously, they came into the room, the assumption of everyone in the room, and, and this is the way I want you to visualize, they're at the table, they're reclined at table, they're prepared for the meal, the socializing of the table is going on, they're settling down, Jesus, sitting at the head of the table, or somewhere of prominence, because he was the master. Everyone would have deferred to him for the place of honor. He sits down with them and then watches them. And at the right moment, and 
Now, this is a little beyond what we have for us, but this is not unlikely. They're, they're preparing to wash their own feet because that's the custom. If there's no servant, they wash their own feet. Feet have to be washed, okay? You can't eat at the table without washed feet. That's the tradition. And so they're getting ready. You imagine, they're talking. They're getting ready for the Passover meal. There's hustle and bustle. It settles down. Jesus is watching it. And they're getting ready to wash their own feet only to look up and see that Jesus has taken off his robe and he has wrapped a servant's towel around his waist and he has now knelt at the first person's feet. They didn't look at that and think, well, that's kind of odd. They were appalled. They were struck with awe. They were shocked. It was a jaw-dropping moment for the twelve. They were offended. It comes out in Peter, but trust me, everybody at that table was offended. Who does Jesus think He is? This is not the way it works. And Peter just lets it out, right? He's the one that typically opens mouth, inserts foot for the disciples. You're not washing my feet, you know. Peter would have made a good American, Mr. Independent. I can do it myself. But what he's doing more than independence is expressing the shock of the room. The master never washes feet, only a lowly Gentile servant. So in this act, Jesus in full dramatic format, tears down all barriers. What they saw was Jew and Gentile doesn't matter. Rich and poor doesn't matter. Free and slave doesn't matter. Male and female in salvation doesn't matter. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. That's what he lived out. In a very basic form, he lived it out. He dramatized it. Think of that. The significance of that. As you look at John 13, I think it's easy to miss it because it's so simple. And it's so disconnected from us. And so what I want to do is give you four S's that connect it. I told Aaron, he had something previously planned for uh, that he had to be out of town. I told him, you missed your shot. Not only is it alliterated tonight, but it's doubly alliterated. And they're both S's. His service is selfless. That's the first thing we see. His service is selfless. In the first five verses of chapter 13, we see here that they came for the Passover, as we've been told, and they were here, and Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart and go back to the Father. And his love for his own is boiling up inside of him. It's turmoil. It's that feeling that we have when we look at our children as we're departing from them. We're going to leave them. Only this time he's not leaving. It would be like the father. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be overly emotional. There's a lot of people connected to this, but hear me when I say this respectfully. It's like someone young as Corey Reichert looking at his children the day of his death and saying, this is it. I'm not going to see my children again. 
That's how the Lord felt. He loved them to the end. The emotion of the text is that he loved them like a father over children. He loved them passionately until the very end, knowing he's about to die. So he then does this act of selflessness. Look what he does. He rises from the table, and he, and he gets his robe off, and he puts on a servant's wardrobe, and he washes feet. That is selflessness. But I want to back you up in time beyond this. Because this isn't the first time Jesus has been selfless, is it? Jesus says earlier, the Son of Man came to serve. Not to be served. Jesus was constantly changing the paradigm of service. The master is going to serve everyone else. Everyone else is not going to serve the master. But even beyond that, if we go back in time, further than that, we see that the Lord was all about service. Because the Bible tells us that He stepped from the throne of glory and put on flesh to be a slave. For us, He enslaved Himself to flesh so that He might serve us. He was a selfless servant. And I ask you, husbands, you want to preach the gospel. I know you do. Are you selflessly serving in your home? Are we as men serving our families in this tone, in this tenor? I think about when you're around the dinner table, I catch myself, if I'm not careful, telling my children, and I know I'm probably the only one that does this, but tell my children, there's always odds and ends you forget, right? And it's easy to, as the parent, say to the child, go get this for me, and go get that for me. And I catch myself doing it, and immediately I think, I'm not teaching them what I preach. I should get up from the table and go get what they need. I should anticipate their needs and serve them in the simplest acts of service to show selflessness. I should be the last one to sit down so that everyone else is cared for and then sit and eat. Simple things, men, not big things. Simple things. Ladies, are you serving in such a way in, in your role as a wife to your husband, that the world looks at you and says, that is a selfless bride. And are they then able to connect from that your love for Christ? And is it preaching the gospel to them? Jesus preached well when he served this way. He took off his outer robes, his robes of his master's robes, his robes of teaching, his robes of of distinguishing Mark, whatever it might be. He took that off and he put on the servant's towel. But deeper than that, the Philippians passage tells us much before that, he had taken off glory and put on flesh to become a slave for us. Much deeper. So his service was selfless. Secondly, his service is sanctifying. His service is sanctifying. You might miss it in 6-11, through 11, this conversation that's going on between Jesus and Peter. Because we get so focused on what Peter says, and we think, how could Dumbo Peter say what he says? Right? This, 
this statement seems so out of touch, but look what Jesus, I want us to focus on what Jesus says. Verse 7, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but after it or afterward you will understand. After what? What did they not understand and after what event would they understand it? That's the question you ask, right? This is the question I ask of this verse. Now, we could say it's after he teaches them about loving service, maybe. But no, I don't think so. The disciples don't fully grasp what he's doing at this point until after the cross. It's after the ultimate service of the cross that they look back at the foot washing and say, Now I get it. Now I understand why he went through this. Remember, the conversation is going on in front of everybody. Peter says, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you don't have a part with me. And then Peter says, then wash my head and my hands and my feet. In the Jewish world, he's saying, wash me completely. Give me a bath. Put me in the shower. What is he crying out for? Holiness. He's saying, sanctify me fully then. And Jesus says, I have. Because Jesus is looking forward. What they can't understand, they're thinking, when did he wash Peter? He washed him when he planned to die for him. On the cross, he would wash him. He would sanctify him. All you need now, Peter, is just a touch-up. All you need now is, is to just be renewed in it. That's all. You already trust me for salvation. I've already sanctified you, but I will continually wash you clean. Are you returning to Christ regularly in your walk saying, I know I'm saved, but this, this attitude that I express today in holy God, help me. He says he'll wash you. His service is sanctifying. He constantly now sits in the Holy of Holies serving us still like he did the disciples. He's washing us clean constantly saying, hey, my blood has availed much. My blood covers it all. My blood is applied anew. Don't sweat it. It's forgiven. It's finished. It's that event that Jesus is saying, I think referencing here in John 13, when he says, you don't understand it now, but after it you will understand. After the crucifixion you can understand what I'm doing for you. It's a sanctifying work that Jesus does. And it's being parabolized, it's being lived out in a drama for us physically in the upper room with the washing of the disciples' feet. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. That should tell us right there that he's speaking spiritually, not physically. Judas didn't forget to take a bath that day. Judas didn't forget to put on his deodorant, and he smelled, and everybody else smelled good. And so Jesus is saying, not all of us are clean. That guy down there, he's dirty. No. Jesus is saying, I have 11 that are mine, and I have one that is not mine. And though I wash his feet at the table, he's not clean. But you, Peter, are clean. What a beautiful picture. He sanctifies us through his service. So that's a second point. Thirdly, he's, his service is saving. Now, I've already touched on it in verse 7, but, but I, but I want to reiterate it. 
you're going to understand it afterward. Now look at verse chapter 15. Flip over just in the, in the discourse section to prove the point. I just want to show you where I get this. 15 verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Greater love has no one than this than he lays down his life for his friends. He says to Peter, what I'm doing right now you don't understand, but after it you will understand. His service is a saving service. He laid down his life as the fulfillment of the Passover so that he would save his people. I've chosen you. And not only have I chosen you for a saving work, but this is a satisfying work. His service is satisfying. It's a satisfying. He satisfied the Father's just wrath against his people. And now he prepares them to be satisfied in him alone so that they might go out and satisfy, through His righteousness, the righteous requirements of the law. How? By loving one another as He has loved us. Look, us Reformed types fail in this. We stop, myself included, we stop with justification, often. We rightly focus on the fact that God justifies us as no act of our doing. He does it on us. He justifies us through Christ alone. What we fail to do often is connect that with sanctification. And to say, because He has saved us of no doing of our own work, we now work in His grace and in His righteousness and in His power. It's a satisfying service because it satisfies the justice of God. It satisfies or causes us to be fully satisfied in Him so that we can satisfy in His righteousness the righteous requirement of the law. It's an active then satisfaction. God is pleased with His people as they serve. God is pleased with us, not because our works are saving us. Because we are saved, we do works which are an aroma to God. The disciples, and Jesus' justification always worked this way. And we're going to close tonight by looking. I know it's a long, it breaks all the rules. It breaks all the rules of preaching class. You never read long texts because people get bored. Well, that's a problem on your part, not mine. If you get bored reading God's Word, have it out with God. We're going to read the Upper Room Discourse. In its entirety. You're going to see what I'm talking about. The justification doctrine of Jesus always turns back on sanctification and always turns back on us living out our justification. Actively living it out. Okay? So it's a service that saves so that it satisfies the Father's justice, makes us satisfied in Christ, And then we then live out this satisfaction in service by living out the great command that Jesus gives, the new command that Jesus gives. Here in this text, 
it says in verse 13, 31 through 35, Now is the Son of Man glorified, glorified, and God is glorified in Him. God is satisfied. He's more than that, but He's at least satisfied with what Jesus has done. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once at the cross. He did this. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I, told, I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. Here, after the justification talk, look what he immediately goes into. This is what I'm afraid we miss so often. I do it in my preaching, in my teaching, in my own life. It's easy to forget, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this kind of love, this self-denying, sacrificial, serving kind of love, the world will know that you are my disciples. Because of the love that you have for one another. Listen. We get so caught up, and rightly so, in the majesty and the glory of God justifying us and saving us apart from any work that we can do because we know we can't do it. That we then forget the other part. And that is that we live out justification practically. It's not part of the text. I didn't write it down, but it just came to my mind, so I want to say it. It's like Luke 18. It's like Luke 18. The, the, the publican came to pray, and all of his life matched what we would think a good person is. Right? But Jesus didn't say he was justified. Jesus said nothing about him being justified. He says that the, the, the I mean, the, uh, excuse me, the, the publican, I got my, the, the Pharisee and the, the lawyer came, and he had done right. The sinner comes and has done nothing, nothing to save himself. He's, all he can do is bow his head and beat his chest and cry out, what? Forgive me, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. He can't even lift his head to heaven. This humble attitude expresses his belief that God will justify him. Okay? That's Jesus' doctrine of justification. But immediately after that, we're told that we're to be the servants of all. We're to be little servants running around serving. Jesus' justification is always married to action. And we miss it. I miss it. And on this Thursday, what, we're to, what Jesus in the upper room again is telling his men is this. Don't miss it. I've saved you. I've served you. Now you do what I've done. You serve one another. Love one another as I've loved you. This is how the world will know you is that you love one another in service, actively. I want to apply it, and then I'm going to just read it. I just want to make some applications. Dads, if you want to win the hearts of your children, serve them. Don't just simply preach at them, but stoop down lower than them and do what the rest of the world requires of children. You do it as a man and serve them. Men, if we want to teach our sons how to be husbands, 
we will serve our wives well. We will put their needs before our needs. We will die to ourselves every day as Christ died for the church. And in that, we will wash them clean through our prayer, through our reading of the word, and through our service to them. Women, ladies, the same is true. The church, like the church, serves her Lord. So Sarah served Abraham and even dared to call him Lord. And God saw it as beautiful. And he esteemed it highly. So women, in your life, serve your husbands. Families together should be serving. We offer opportunities for you, but that's not all you can do. You can do much more than that. We have one next weekend, April the 6th. We're going to serve some of the least and the most needy in our community. Why are we doing it? Can they do anything to return for us? No. That's the point. We want to love who can't do anything for us. We want to love them. Because that's when the world stands up. If, if, if you help those who are powerful and who have an ability to repay you, everybody says, oh, yeah, I know what's going on with this game. <laughs> They're just getting on the good side of the, of, the, of the inner circle. They just want to get the benefit and the payback. But when you serve those who have no ability to repay you, know this, your Father sees it in heaven, and He will give you a reward. So we as families should serve one another internally and then as a family go into services and serve one another. Serve those in the church. There are the sick in our own churches. There are those in financial needs in our own churches. There are other practical ways to hands-on serve one another in our churches. And that's what displays the love of the Father and the Son to the world. And then through that, serving our lost, lost community members. The least and the most needy. These are all ways that we can live out Monday Thursday. These are all ways we can live out the command. And so as we close, just let me uh, quickly read one section uh, with you that we, we have not touched on tonight. John 15. So I don't want you to leave after all this about Jesus' selfless, sanctifying, saving, and satisfying service. I don't want you to leave thinking, now we've got to go try harder. we got to do it. First, chapter 15. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Lest we run off at the, at the hip and try to save ourselves. Jesus says, your work is to abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abide, rest, accept him. Take his service as acceptable to us. And then live in that. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it, is, that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You see, what we celebrate on Monday, Thursday, the parable of service and the washing of the feet, is simply a prelude to what he would do on the cross. The cross is an interesting way to die. In 71 AD, history tells us the Romans had a huge slave rebellion in a part of their empire. They took, they took 6,000 slaves on one day and crucified them in public. That's because the crucifixion it was known in the Roman Empire as the death of slaves. The Sure, rebels against the emperor were crucified, murderers were crucified, but the most crucifixions that occurred occurred against slaves. Is it any coincidence that Jesus took on the role of slave from the very beginning and died a slave's death in the end? He served us in his death as a slave. How did he serve us? He set us free as slaves of sin to be friends of God. But why did he do that? 
so that he might be glorified in our serving. You see, when we're out serving, when we're out doing and loving in his name, they glorify our Father in heaven. So the final thing I would ask tonight as we come draw near to the table is, are we living out his service? As we draw near to worship him in communion, I'm wondering, will you commit to serving like he served? You, you may say, I never thought of it until tonight, Carl. I, I never put two and two together. I never con connected service and the cross and salvation in this way. But I see it, and your commitment in coming forward is to say, I'm going to live it. By the power and grace of God, I'm going to live in service to Christ. Out of overflow of my thankfulness for his service, I'm simply going to mimic him so that the world knows my father. We draw near to the table to celebrate the Lord, to commune with the Lord, to remember the Lord. What better way to remember him than to serve like he served? What better way to honor him than to live out his, his life in our lives? And so, as we draw near to the table, I want to call us to the table through confession. And it's printed for you, and it will also be on the screens. It's the Apostles' Creed. Here at Grace Fellowship, we take Lord's Supper. The way we do that is all believers are welcome to the table. All believers are welcome. We open the table, and you come forward. All believers are encouraged to come forward and take the bread and the juice as an individual. Because when you're saved, you come to Christ as an individual. You can't be saved because of family lineage. You're saved based on a personal change of heart. So that's what we're symbolizing. When you come forward and you take from the table, you're symbolizing coming to Christ. I'm coming to Christ alone. But you don't stay alone. Because he grafts you into a body, into that vine, and you're now a part of the congregation of God. So we go back to our seats and sit patiently waiting. While everyone comes forward, all believers welcome to come forward and take from the communion table and then sit patiently. And we will actually take in the elements together as a body. It symbolizes our communion.